Hello, everybody, and welcome to Firefighting Legends. I'm your host, Chuck Hampton, and today I want to share with you a conversation I had recently with retired Fire Chief Steve Abrera. Chief Abrera had a distinguished career in the fire service. He got his start in Miami, Florida, where he rose through the ranks to the level of assistant chief, and then it went on to be the chief of the department in not one, but three different cities, including Dallas, Texas. Today's show is going to be a bit of a departure from the stories we've told in previous shows. What I want to do today is simply play some audio from our conversation and then take some of Chief Abrera's words of wisdom and break them down, because for everything he says, I think there's a lot to unpack. So let's get started. The first question I asked Chief Abrera was what led him to a career in the fire service? Here's his response. My father was a Miami firefighter, um, so I was pretty much just like a lot of Dallas uh, uh, families. I was raised in the fire service pretty much, Mm. and uh, I knew back ninth grade that I was going to be a Miami firefighter, and I was preparing Mm. myself for that. I, you know, back then in the 60s, you know, <laughs> there was marijuana and uh, good times could be had. And, uh, and yeah. of course, I knew um, to get on the Miami Fire Department, you had to pass mm-hmm. a drug test and you had to pass a uh, lie detector test. So I yeah. never, ever touched the stuff <laughs> because I knew I didn't want to ruin my yep. chance to get on the department. Yep. Okay, let's stop right here because this is the first major takeaway from this conversation with Chief Rebrera, and it's vitally important to anyone contemplating a career in the fire service. This first takeaway is a very simple one. Keep your nose clean. If you want a career in the fire service or in the police department, you need to know that recreational drug use can potentially keep you from getting hired, and use after you get hired can get you fired. Now, I'm not arguing whether that's right or wrong. That discussion is down the hall in the philosophy department. I'm just saying that's the way it is, and whether you like it or not doesn't make a lick of difference. And it's not just marijuana. I've seen men with 20 or 30 years old who would never smoke marijuana, but who got hooked on prescription pain pills due to a back injury, and then they continue taking those pills after they no longer have a script for them. But it does not matter that this person came by his addiction honest. He's going to be in the unemployment line just the same as the recreational user. I would also expand this to say that substance abuse of any type, including alcohol, can derail your career. And I say this because I've seen it over and over and over. One of the saddest cases I saw was when I ran into a friend of mine walking out of the internal affairs office with his son. His son had just completed rookie school, where he had done very well, and his papa was so proud of his little legacy following in his footsteps. Well, the son and his friends decided to go out and celebrate their graduation from rookie school, and they came up with a good plan to make sure they didn't get into trouble. They decided they would spend the night at the home of the one guy in the group who lived within walking distance of the bar scene. It was a good plan, but you know what happens when you have a few drinks is the inhibitions that normally keep you out of trouble get disinhibited. The young man decided 
he didn't want to sleep on a friend's couch. He wanted to go home and sleep in his bed, so he got in his truck and he drove. The good news is nobody gets killed in this story. The bad news is that he got pulled over and he blew hot, and just like that, his career as a Dallas firefighter, which was off to such a great start, was over before it even got started. I can't tell you the sadness that was in both the father's eyes and the son's eyes. It was the end of a dream that father and son had long shared. Now, bad as that was, it could have been a lot worse. The young man learned a painful lesson, but he'll get over it. Not so for another son of a firefighter, whose story was similar. He, too, was barely out of rookie school when he went out for a night on the town in Big D, but his story ended not with a DWI, but with a fatal collision on Interstate 30. If you plan to embark on a career in the fire service, do like Chief Abrera. Keep your nose clean. The same set of rules that saves your career may also save your life. Now back to Chief Abrera telling how he got started in his fire service career. I prepared myself through high school, and when I turned um, 17, I graduated at 17 from high school, even though they don't accept your applications till you're 18, the, uh, the chairman of the civil service board, who was a Miami firefighter, knew my dad, uh, said, just go ahead and fill out the application and I'll hold it until you turn 18, which was going to be that later that November. So that's what I did. I applied at 17. He notified, he put it in the system at 18. I took the, uh, the civil service exam and uh, got on when I was 19. And it was funny because my wife and I got married in February of 1974, uh, 1974, went on our honeymoon. And when we got back, my notice was there to go to rookie school. So I started rookie school in April of 74. And uh, that was the beginning. Okay, so what we just learned is that Chief Abrera started his fire service career very early. And if you weren't careful, you could just skip right over that part as if it was just his personal story. But this is another key takeaway because getting an early start on your fire service career has major implications for you later in life. And not just because firefighting is a young man's game, which it is, but for other reasons as well. Let me introduce you to a pair of fictional twin brothers, Joe Bob and Beauregard. Joe Bob graduates high school at 18, gets the 45 college hours he needs to apply to the Dallas Fire Department at a local community college for next to nothing in tuition and fees. He's on the job at 20 years old with a starting salary of over 61000 He immediately enrolls in the 401k program and begins contributing the maximum of 19500 a year, which saves him money on his taxes and allows the money he contributes to grow tax-free. He invested in the stock market, where he earned 6% annually. 20 years later, when Joe Bob is 40, he's accumulated $736,837 in that account. He has also probably bought a house and has some equity and other investments as well, but we're not even going to count that. Let's just round it off and say that 
By 40, he's got about three-quarter mil in the bank. Meanwhile, Joe Bob's twin brother, Beauregard, follows the advice of his parents and his high school counselor and goes to an expensive private college for four years to get his bachelor's degree, then does another four years working on his Ph.D. with an eye towards being a tenured professor at a distinguished college. He takes on 100000 in debt to pursue his dream. He completes his Ph.D. in his late 20s and soon finds a little work as an adjunct professor, making very low wages. Beauregard is 40 before he is able to pay off his student debt with his meager salary from being an adjunct. Now, even if Beauregard gets his dream of tenure with a big university and then starts maxing out his 401k, he's never going to catch up. Twelve years later, when Joe Bob is 52 and has been maxing out his 401k for 32 years, it has ballooned to $1,820,577, and he has a fire department pension to boot. So Joe Bob is moving to the beach at 52. Beauregard, with only 12 years of retirement savings, has a mere $337,915, so he's going to have to continue trudging into the office till his teeth fall out. Education is very important, and you should get the education you need to pursue your dreams. But if your dream is to be a firefighter, the time to get started on the job is as early as possible. After all, you can always further your education on your day off at the city's expense using the tuition reimbursement program. Chief Rebrer, in fact, did go on to get his college degree, You can do that, too, but don't wait to start your career if you want to have a fire service career. Now back to our conversation with Chief Abrera, where my next question was how long he worked for Miami. Here's Chief Abrera. Well, I worked uh, in Miami for 26 years, a little over 26 years. I was, Mm -hmm. you know, I progressed up through the ranks. I, Mm -hmm. I never intended on progressing through the ranks. I loved riding the tailboard back then. Yeah. I mean, it was five people on an engine and, and I just had a blast doing calls and, and, but my dad was always there, even though he was a driver, he always encouraged me to, to take the test. says, you might as well make as much money as you can for retirement. Yep. Yep. So I, I, I mean, I took every exam that I was eligible for and made it mm-hmm. on every one of the uh, lists that mm-hmm. I got on. And, um, the, uh, you know, the other motivating factor was I'd look over and I'd see the guy that's sitting in the Lieutenant seat. I'd go, Hmm, I could do this better than him. (laughs) (laughs) And that kind of motivated me all the way up through the ranks because I'd look at the district chief. I go, Hmm. I think I know more than him. (laughs) I, yeah, I, uh, when I I got toward, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say when uh, I also promoted uh, at a really young age, and I was kind of nervous about that because I didn't feel like I had as uh, much age and experience as what I might need. Uh, But I had that same experience where I I saw some people and I was like, you know what? At least I'm not going to be the worst lieutenant (laughs) on the fire department. Okay, all kid decide there's another good takeaway from Chief Rebrea here. Did you notice that he said he took every test? If you're interested in promoting, you should take every test. 
A lot of young folks think they'd like to retire as a captain someday, but then they don't take advantage of every promotional opportunity. I hear all kinds of reasons why someone didn't take a given exam, and the one thing all these reasons have in common is that they're all bad. If you want to promote to a certain level before you retire, take every test until you reach that level. There's several reasons for this. First off, you build on your knowledge when you take every test instead of going years between studying. Another is that older brains just don't absorb new information as well as younger brains. You're at a competitive disadvantage when you're older, so start early. But a really important reason is that when it comes to promotional opportunities, some years are lean and some years are fat. You never know when they're going to make a lot of promotions. So always be on the list and eventually it'll be your turn to make it. Now back to Chief Abrera, where I asked him to what rank he ascended to there in Miami. I was uh, assistant chief over all of EMS and fire. Ah. I knew, see, and that's what I was going to mention was I vacillated towards the end of my career, whether I really wanted to be a fire chief Mm -hmm. or just finish my career in Miami. And so I started looking around. I applied at a few places, really not that committed back then. And, uh, yeah, cause I love my job. I mean, I, overall of fire and EMS, I mean, right. what, what's better than chief of ops basically. Right. So, um, my son happened to see an ad in the Miami Herald, little tiny ad in the classifieds that said Dallas was looking for a fire chief. So, I mean, I didn't have any real I didn't have any real thought that I would ever get the job, you know, because I'd been applying. I applied at Miami Beach. I applied at Miramar uh, and I would get close, but I just didn't. I didn't even get a call from Miramar, which Mm. was pretty funny. (laughs) And that was about the same time as the Dallas job came. Ah, Yeah. And that's how I finally left. I luckily I was, you know, I, I didn't. I wasn't planning on leaving until I knew I could retire. And so I, I was eligible to retire from Miami, uh, which puts me in a good position. Note that Chief Abrera said, in so many words, that he wasn't going to quit his day job until he was in a secure financial position. There's an important lesson there we'll be talking more about. But first, a story about his visit to a Dallas fire station while he was still in the interview process for the chief of the department job in Dallas. The first time I went in for an interview, because uh, they brought us back twice, I believe. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, they put us at the Adolphus. I immediately threw my uh, stuff in the room and I, and I asked the uh, front desk, where's the closest fire station? And he told me the one there right in downtown. So I hoofed it over there. They said, are you going to walk over there? I said, yeah, I'll walk over there. I don't care. And walk in the fire station. And and I saw those uniforms and I about had a heart attack. (laughs) I was like, come on, man. Real men. You can't put men in Dickie jeans. I'm sorry. (laughs) Especially to do the work we're doing. And so that was my first experience. And uh, Talaferro was there. (laughs) So we started, they invited me to dinner, just Mm -hmm. typical, Mm -hmm. great people, great guys. And 
So they said, Hey, well, yeah, what do you, I said, I'm here to interview for your chief's job. And this mm-hmm. is, he, he tell, I can remember it like it was yesterday. He says, well, are you one of them do boys? I said, what? He says, yeah, you know, do whatever they tell you to do. Oh. I said, <laughs> said, no, that's not, not really the way I am. And he says, well, you're not going to get the job. <laughs> <laughs> Crack oh, me up, man, but I'll never forget that. Okay, let's take a moment to discuss the significance of what we just heard. Chief Rabura did prove during his tenure in Dallas that he was not a do-boy, a fact that would simultaneously earn him the respect of the troops and the ire of the city manager. I think that sticking to your guns is probably a little bit easier when you are not 100% dependent on your paycheck to be able to feed your family. Which brings me to an important takeaway. If you were paying attention a little bit earlier, you heard Chief Rabura say that He wasn't planning on leaving Miami until he knew he could retire, that he was eligible for a Miami pension before he left Miami. I would say his admonition to make sure you are financially stable before leaving the department applies not only to those leaving for a chief of the department job, but also to those leaving for the private sector. I wish I had kept track of how many people I've seen leave the fire department for the private sector over the years and how many of them later tried to get their job back, some of whom were successful in that endeavor and many of whom were not. I've seen people leave this job for every reason under the sun. One fellow quit to pursue his dream of being a naval aviator, but the Navy, who had told him he was accepted and to come on down to Annapolis, rescinded their offer after he showed up there and they realized they had overlooked how short his arms were. It turns out it's important to be able to reach the instrument panel. Countless others left for private sector jobs when the economy was booming, only to discover that the economy is cyclical and what goes up must come down. One fellow I know left because he thought it would help his marriage, but he found out the hard way that if you don't enjoy each other's company when you only see each other two days out of three, you ain't going to like each other any better when you're together every day. While Chief Rabrera was at the helm of the Dallas Fire Department, he had a lot on his plate. In addition to dealing with city management, there were, and still are, three different firefighter associations which were not always in harmony with each other, nor with him. And yet, by and large, he retained the loyalty of the troops even while dealing with divisiveness. I asked him to talk about how he was able to do that. Well, I mean, it it was kind of like my interview. I, I... I don't, I don't pull punches. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest. Mm-hmm. I do care. It's not about me. It was about the troops. Um, and, and I think that translates well with firefighters. They know it, they see it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I mean, I love going to the fire stations and, and sitting down with them and having lunch. And I, I mean, I, I can't tell you how great a feeling it was that, and it was, um, for some, it would be hard, but see, I, I always did that. Even in Miami, I would ride out with my guys. I would, I would spend the night so that I get the, you know, I don't forget where I came from. And I think that was a thing that, uh, the troops saw. I showed up at their fires 
which I love to do, yep. you know, yeah, <laughs> that made me so happy to see one of the best departments in the whole country working. It is just phenomenal how good uh, Dallas is. As we heard, even though Chief Abreu rose to the highest office, he never stopped being a firefighter. He continued visiting fire stations and going to fires, not to assume command, but just to be there, to observe his troops in action, and to be a part of what was going on and show his support. I think there's a fringe benefit to Chief Cabrera's management style, and it has to do with mitigating our innate tribalism. There's an old Bedouin proverb, I against my brother, I and my brother against our cousin, I, my brother, and our cousin against the neighbors. All of us against the foreigner. Unfortunately, that's just human nature, and we see it all the time on both a macro and a micro level. If you've ever worked at any fire station, you know that A shift thinks B shift is lazy, B shift thinks the C shift is stealing their food, and C shift thinks that the entire A shift must have been dropped on their heads when they were babies. But that's just the beginning, because South Dallas thinks North Dallas firefighters aren't aggressive, and North Dallas thinks South Dallas is full of mouth breathers that thump their chest every time they have a mattress fire in a little shotgun shack. All the guys in operations think that the dispatchers are not doing their job, which is coincidental, because the dispatchers all think that the guys in operations are not doing theirs. And the really crazy thing is that within six months of transferring from ops to dispatch, or vice versa, their opinion is going to change 180 degrees. And if they go back, it's going to change 180 degrees again. Further, emergency ops doesn't like special ops, and within special ops, each specialty dislikes and distrusts every other specialty. But wait, there's more. Within a given specialty, like USAR, there's a rivalry between the different USAR stations, and not always a good-natured rivalry. The job of a fire chief trying to manage all these factions is not an easy one especially if you were hired from outside yourself and human nature being what it is, we're probably going to identify you as an outsider unless and until proven otherwise. So if you end up as a chief somewhere and would like to work with human nature instead of against it, follow Chief Herbrera's lead. Don't forget where you came from. Don't just support the troops. Show us that you're still one of us because the alternative Staying isolated in your ivory tire is not going to be an effective strategy. Let's return now to our conversation with Chief Rebrera, where he describes for us the difficulty of dealing with city management. You know, I'm not, I, I'm not good with politics. I admit it. I don't like politics, unfortunately. I, I can't play political games for my own skin. And, um, that was kind of what was expected and I couldn't do it. I mean, I, I mean, from day one, I'm going to tell you the manager wanted me to look at staffing. And I said, you're right. You're right, Ted. We need five, not four on engines. And he, (laughs) you know, they, they realized quickly that I was not going to succumb to cutting staffing. It was just not going to happen while I was there. And that's always the pressure on the fire chief is to do more with less, of course, and compromise the safety of the troops in the field by cutting personnel on responding apparatus. Because, you know, 
oh, we don't do as much firefighting as we used to. Well, it only takes one, as we know. So there was a uh, change in the city manager, I guess, during your tenure from Ted Benavides to Mary yeah. Soon. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Okay, yeah. Uh, and certainly, um, without going into too much detail, uh, she would be described, uh, I think, by most people in the city of Dallas, not as famous, but infamous. <laughs> right. So I can imagine, I can imagine how difficult it would be working in that administration. Well, you have no idea. ultimately chief Abrera and city manager mary soon would have irreconcilable differences that would culminate in chief Abrera leaving dallas and returning to florida where he chiefed the palm bay fire department for a while then he would go to the northeast and chief another big city fire department boston where he would once again push for the things he believed were important. I asked him to tell us about that experience. So, so I threw my name in the hat and went up there. And, of course, I got the job. And I didn't, I knew it would be a tough, tough environment because I had always heard about the union in Boston. I didn't realize it was that bad. I was the first one from outside. In every one of my chief's positions, I was the first one from outside. In Dallas, Bay, and then in Boston. And I thought, okay, you know, I, I would think that these guys would be like, all the other firefighters that I've experienced, but not so much. Uh, The union there is so powerful that they rule everything. And they, um, if they refuse to cooperate, they make sure their members don't cooperate, whether they want to or not. And that's kind of what I ran into. I mean, it just every day, I, I used to joke about I'm on the planet of Boston is completely different. Uh, I'm in the twilight zone here. Every day was something new and stupid. And my first call, I mean, I started in November of 2011. So I went up there and of course, I went up there by myself for the first month or month and a half. Uh, and, uh, I was at the office and it's really a horrible place. Uh, old, old, horrible place. De- depressing to be there. So, and it's winter. <laughs> so, and they kept the uh, outgoing chief on just to help me with transition. So my first day there, we get a fire, a typical fire in a uh, two and a half story, you know, uh, house two stories with a converted garage, uh, converted attic. So he says, Hey, you want to go? I said, yeah, heck yeah, let's go. So we run out there and I'm standing there and I'm watching the operation. I'm going, Holy, I look and they got a ladder, an aerial device up to the roof. And a guy goes up there, firefighter coat open ax in hand, no SCBA, climbs the ladder. This thing is cooking, man. 
and proceeds to take his helmet off and set it on the the ridge, what looked like the ridge of the the roof, the pitched roof. But little did I know there was a the, a shed dormer off the back, so kind of like a flat roof back there for the conversion of the attic, and and proceeds to start whacking on this roof by himself. Meantime, I hear nothing but breaking glass. Every Every window in that place was broken out. And I'm going, I, I walked over the, to the acting uh, district chief. I said, hey, that guy up on that roof by himself doesn't make me too comfortable. And he says, whoa, you want me to take him down? I said, no, you know what? Do what you normally do. And I have pictures of it. It's <laughs> just. And that was my first run with them. And I'm like, oh, my God, no hoods, old, old, non-compliant helmets. I mean, old, bent up, you know, that I guess they thought that was that's neat or something. But uh, no ear flaps, no helmet straps. Uh, So the old saying about the fire service being hundreds of years of tradition unimpeded by progress really oh, yeah. applied I think there. that's where it originated. Yeah. <laughs> 300 years of uh, the same yeah. stuff. Yeah. And they've been doing it. I, I Believe me, I had deputy chiefs tell me, we've been doing it this way for years. You know, yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. yeah. Do you remember from earlier that when Chief Obrera came to Dallas, he immediately saw an issue with our uniforms and set about getting them upgraded? And did you notice just now that when he went to Boston, he was immediately concerned with the firefighters' turnout gear and also with some old-style fireground operations that did not reflect the latest best practices? Man, let me tell you what. I love our fire service traditions. I love the custom of coming to work way earlier than you officially have to be there. I love the tradition of teamwork that says no one is done till everyone is done. And there is nothing like bagpipes playing at our ceremonies. But as much as I love our traditions, tradition has no place in emergency operations, especially on the fire ground. When science brings us a better understanding of what works or when technology gives us a product that helps us do our job better or more safely, then it's time to drive a wooden stake through the heart of tradition to make sure it is good and dead. Tradition is for non-emergency use only. Now back to Chief Abrera and his challenges in Boston. The problem, too, is I could have had an impact there, definitely. But the way, first of all, the mayor wouldn't allow me, wouldn't allow me to do what was necessary. I really needed to demote some people, and he wouldn't let me do it because the deputies didn't absolutely nothing other than call extra alarms. We, I would go to fires on the fifth alarm, okay? And they would expect the fire chief to assume command from deputy chiefs that have all this experience. I'm like, no guys, this is stupid. That's what you get paid to do. And it was all about blame basically is, is if you, 
if something goes wrong, then they can blame you because you've assumed command. And I changed that while I was there, but they hated it. And, you know, I would, I would be automatically dispatched on a fifth alarm. And I'll tell you quite honestly, a fifth alarm there is like a two alarm in Dallas because I would get there and it'd be all defensive by the time I'd get there on a fifth. And it wouldn't surprise me that it was defensive because how can you stand going into a building with no hood on and no ear protection? So they, and there was no real um, coordination. They call it incident command, but it really was an incident command. They wouldn't divide up the scene. They wouldn't assign divisions They would or sectors or anything like that. It would just be, uh, <laughs> you know, here's a classic. You know, and I'd sit down with, I had 14 deputies that there. They're all in the union. Everybody below me was in the union. So the 14 deputies all had aides, drivers. And I'd go to the scene and I'd see, you know, what are they, they didn't, they, they wouldn't set up command like we did at a vehicle established and, have the aides running the thing. They would have a portable board eventually that they would set up to manage the scene. But so I asked the deputies, I said, Hey, what do you, what do you have your aide do? One of them told me, get this. Well, I send him inside and then he comes back out and reports to me what's going on. <laughs> I'm I'm serious as a heart attack. I said, I wow. said, what? That's what you got officers for. That's what you got radios for. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just a little yeah. little taste of the the stuff that was going. That still, I mean, to this day, I'm. I it's funny because I wanted to get if I wanted to get them. They were wearing their bunker jackets during the winter as cold weather gear. Never been clean. Mm. Nothing was in compliance. Mm. Um, I wanted to do the same thing I did for Dallas that I there, you know, get them in compliant gear, nice, new, clean stuff, have the cleaning process. Uh, I had to go back and do a survey of all the equipment. People would have four or five sets of gear that were mm. handed down from retirees leaving the job. Oh, you here, you can have my gear. Wow. So I had to, which, uh, uh, 60% of that gear was non-compliant. Mm. So, I mean, it brings all these memories back just talking about yeah, it, but, yeah. um, I, I wanted to give them all nice compliant, yeah. just like I did with Dallas jackets. Mm-hmm. Zip-in liners, uh, pathogen-resistant, that kind of stuff, right? Yes. So that union says, uh, okay, so, and they didn't even have to buy them. I was going to give them to them. I was going to buy them and give all the members those jackets. Uh, What are you going to bargain for for that? So they wanted me to give them something so that I can give them something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's hard to imagine Can you imagine that uh, no I, I i i cannot anyway my wow. boston experience wow. cured me of being a chief ever again <laughs> <laughs> yeah so many things there are so different i mean i 
in 37 years, never once in Dallas saw the chief of the department uh, take command of an incident. And extremely, extremely rare that I ever saw the assistant chief of emergency operations take command of an incident. Generally, two, three, four, five alarms, it's going to be the deputy chief. Like I said, that's their job. That's what they do. That's what they do all the time. That's what they're good at. Um, it would not want the chief of the department who spends all of his time in meetings and handling policy and procedures to be running a fire ground incident. That is, uh, seems like a recipe for disaster. Well, it's funny because <clears throat> I go to these five alarms, uh, fires mm-hmm. and my impression was that when they didn't know what else to do, they call for another alarm, the deputy. I mean, we have hundreds of guys standing around outside watching elevated streams pouring on a building and they're calling a sixth alarm. I'm like, what are you (laughs) doing? What are they going to do? (laughs) Why? It just, it was just mind boggling. And, you know, and it's funny because in Dallas, I mean, at at one, I know, I remember one fire I went to, uh, Stu Grant was the, uh, incident commander. Mm-hmm. And it was over, it was over near SMU, just north of where I lived in the M streets. And mm-hmm. we had, it was an apartment house and we had um, a lot going on and there were some people missing mm-hmm. college kids. Mm-hmm. And I told them, Hey, give me that division. And I went up and took over a division while we were in transition and we ended up finding, you know, of course, a, a, a young student had passed away. She was in a tub mm. in one of the apartments, but, but I mean, that's what I was there for just to help. Sure. I could run it, right. but that's not my yep. job. And it, you know, it was kind of hindsight now looking at Boston and the interview process, there are a lot of questions about my experience in running incident command or running incidents, mm. which I had plenty of mm-hmm. in Miami. Mm-hmm. And I'd been experienced in overview of major incidents in Dallas. And, and they were questioning, okay, because that was their mode is, is if the chief shows up, he's in command which is the stupidest thing I ever heard of. But <laughs> anyway, it was uh, quite an experience. Yep. Sounds like it. So looking back over your career, uh, you've served as both a firefighter and in the executive offices. So a couple of final questions. Uh, first of all, to those that are at the uh, executive level, the uh, deputies, uh, assistant chiefs, the uh, chief of the department, any words you would like to uh, pass along as advice to those people in those sort of uh, executive type positions? Well, I mean, I've always been of the opinion that you need to have the experience coming up through the system to be effective. Mm -hmm. And I've seen far too many individuals that Mm -hmm. we used to call been beamed up to the executive area Mm -hmm without being a lieutenant or a captain or a battalion chief or district chief, and you're at a disadvantage. I'm sorry, you may be the greatest person in the world. You may 
be a good firefighter. But if you haven't had those incremental experiences of, okay, dealing with a fire company of individuals Mm -hmm. that you have to manage Mm -hmm. and then being in charge of a fire station where you have more individuals that you have to manage and deal with. And then being a district chief where you have multiple fire stations and multiple officers that you have to manage and deal with and all of those differences that occur between those those stations and those captains and those lieutenants and firefighters if you yeah. don't get that and then all of a sudden you're in charge of a whole division i i just don't i don't have a lot of confidence that you're really prepared to make a good impact now there are some exceptions of course some people can do it but by and large in the fire service and maybe my old head thinking, but, and, and that's how I based all my selections, even in Dallas of like when I picked uh, chief Dorset to be ops, mm-hmm. I'm going to pick people that are respected in the field. I did that. I'm not going to yeah. pick somebody that is not respected in the field because how can you manage or, you know, has no, no experience in the field to manage right. that kind of operation. So yes, sir. I, I guess the advice is, is, you know, prepare yourself. If you really want to get into administration, then you prepare yourself by going through all the opportunities that you can to get the experiences that are going to help you to be successful when and if you get there, that would be my advice for, for people now. I see. I mean, I right. wish I was still there and I wish, you know, I wish I could have finished my career there. I mean, that would have been a dream come true, but unfortunately I, I, I just couldn't stay. But, and then if you were really want to be a fire chief, mm-hmm. first of all, don't compromise your values. Yes. It's going to be hard because <laughs> mm-hmm. I see a lot of chiefs that survive yeah. a long time, and and that tells me, that tells me that they're compromised. Uh, they're mm-hmm. playing this balancing mm-hmm. act between administration, uh, upper administration, and their troops. Um, some of them may have the benefit of having good uh, managers and good leaders above them that will allow them. Uh, to do the things that are necessary to, to make a department great. But, um, and, and make sure if you're going to become a fire chief somewhere else, or if you're planning on, or if you want to be a fire chief somewhere else, I strongly recommend that you retire first (laughs) or are at least eligible for a (laughs) pension first, because there's nothing worse than going somewhere in an environment where you can't leave because financially you'd be ruined. Right. And that's what will happen. If you leave early, Mm -hmm. you don't have, then you really have to compromise your values to keep your job. Mm. Because believe me, in a position of fire chief, you're going to be challenged. You're going to be challenged to do things that you may not believe in or want to do. And I couldn't do that. I could never, ever do that. 
I mean, I could follow orders. And that's what I tried to say is, look, you tell me I'm ordering you to do this, then I'll do it. But see, the MO is, is that they want you to do it. And then when it turns bad, guess who gets blamed? Yeah, they want it to be exactly. on you, the responsibility for that right. decision. <laughs> oh, well, he's the expert. Well, the expert told <clears throat> you not to do it this way, but you made him mm-hmm. do it this way. And this is what happened. Just what he said was going to happen, mm. yeah. which I dealt with quite a bit there in Dallas. <laughs> Again, Chief Abrera has laid out a lot for us to chew on here, some of which we've already touched on earlier in the episode, but I want to take a moment to expand a little bit on the point he made here about picking your executive team, as I believe this is absolutely critical. As the top of the fire department goes, so goes the rest of the department. If you surround yourself with the best and brightest, you'll do well, and if you don't, you won't. Abraham Lincoln, for instance, famously chose not loyalists, but rivals as his team. Not yes men, but strong men who thought differently from him and would challenge him. You may have heard of Dan Carlin, who has an amazing podcast on military history. Mr. Carlin is on record stating that the German army of the First World War was superior to the German army of the Second World War, and that if the latter were as good as the former, we might all be speaking German right now. Many of us, myself included, find this claim surprising, and so he recently devoted an entire episode to explaining his reasoning on this. The Imperial German Army was far from perfect. It had a fair amount of leaders who were in high positions because of nepotism, but when someone in a high position was incompetent, they had a way of moving that person into a position where they wouldn't do a lot of harm. So even if That army wasn't a perfect meritocracy. By and large, people of high merit ran things. But later, in Nazi Germany, whether or not a person was a real subject matter expert wasn't important to Adolf Hitler. Loyalty is what mattered to Hitler. If you were a loyalist, you could be promoted to the highest position even if you lacked competence and expertise. Hermann Göring who Hitler promoted to the head of the Luftwaffe, was said to be so incompetent that even if the Allies had a chance to kill him, they would want to avoid doing so at all costs because it was invaluable to our side to have such an incompetent man in charge of the Luftwaffe. The strength of the Dallas Fire Department, and I suspect many other fire departments, is that we have exceptionally good firefighters, men and women who love their job and want to do their job. As a battalion chief, I often said that my job was like trying to hold back a team of wild horses, which may be a problem, but it's certainly a good problem for a manager to have. If a chief of the department wants to harness the power of his highly motivated troops and move the department in a positive direction, the single most important thing he can do is to surround himself with highly competent assistant chiefs, and the single worst thing he can do is to surround himself with empty suits. This alone can make or break a chief of the department's legacy. 
My final question for Chief Rivera was if he had any words of advice for the younger members on the front end of their career. Here's what he had to say. I guess my uh, my advice is, is if you don't love this job, then you shouldn't be here or you shouldn't do it. If you're there just for the paycheck or if you're there just for the pension, then it, it, it's not the place for you. Um, I mean, I loved getting up every morning and going to work, even, even in the dark days. Uh, Boston, eh, maybe not. But <laughs> but everywhere else, I mean, yeah. I did love getting up and and dealing with the excitement and the new things. It's always something different and and loved interacting with my different troops and and and, and dealing with the little issues that come up. Uh, I mean, it's like, OK, so when we went to the polo shirts in Dallas and I got got a lunch invite down to, I think it was maybe 24s or something. And, and the, the officer, it was kind of an ambush, but I was Mm. cool with it. You know, I don't mind that stuff. I'll, (laughs) I'll argue and uh, discuss anything anybody wanted to discuss it for, for those types of uh, meetings and sixes were there. And, and I said, Hmm, I had uh, Kenny with me, Dorset, so we went to lunch and I like, hmm, this seems like they got something on their mind. <laughs> so so we have lunch and then they start talking about, hey, chief, we want to ask you, um, you know, we're not so happy about not having our brass on our uniform. Mm. You know, the bars. Yep, and, yep, yep. The the like, new polo shirts didn't have that. We had the right, rank. The rank the was labeled. Yeah, labeled on there. Right. So I said, you know. I don't think it's going to look good, but go ahead, put them on. Let me see. So they put them on and it looked all right. I mean, I didn't really, it didn't bother me one way or the other. And I said, well, if you guys think you want it, then we'll do it that way. And then, so we went back and we put it out. Okay. We're going to start putting your bars and on your uh, collars and Oh my God, the pushback from the <laughs> other side that said, Oh God, this looks horrible. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. So it's so funny. I mean, that's the God, fire I department. Love stuff. <laughs> I loved it though. I yeah. love that. Yeah. Well, Chief Abrera, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us today. We well, appreciate well, it. I really appreciate it and miss them, miss those troops and miss being there. But, uh, you know, I'm so happy I had the experience, that's for sure. Yes, sir. All right. Greatest, one of the greatest departments in the country right there. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. We like to think so. You can visit the website firefightinglegends.com for more information about today's show, including photographs of Chief Abrera and a link to the Dan Carlin podcast I mentioned. We'll have a new episode featuring legendary firefighter Pat Murphy out soon, so be looking for that. Also, the Dallas Firefighters Museum has reopened. You can visit Wednesday through Saturday from 9 to 4. Be sure to check the website at dallasfiremuseum.com for more information. That's all for today. My name is Chuck Hampton. Thanks for listening.